Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. Today on The Stacks Book Club, we have brought back author Vanessa Hua to help us discuss Lillian Lee's book, Number One Chinese Restaurant. There will be spoilers today. So if you haven't read the book yet, go ahead and pause and come back once you finished. Before we get to the episode, here's a little bit of housekeeping. All right, here it is, your weekly reminder. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. There is a link there that will take you to all the books discussed today, as well as the social media accounts for The Stacks and our guests. Plus, if you shop through the links on Amazon, you're helping to keep The Stacks free. If you're looking for an amazing book recommendation, send us an email to askingthestacks at gmail.com. Myself and my guest will read it on air, discuss it, and then give you a personalized book recommendation or five. So email askingthestacks at gmail.com with your name, what you're looking for, and maybe a few titles you've loved or hated. If you like the stacks and want to support the work we're doing, here are a few easy ways you can help. First of all, join us over on Patreon. That's a website where you support the work we're doing and earn perks for yourself. We've got a virtual book club, we got inside access to the show, and we have an amazing community of other readers who love the podcast. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to join in. The last thing you can do to help the show is definitely the easiest. Subscribe to the stacks wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and tell your friends and family about the show. It goes a really long way to helping us reach new audiences. All right, now it's time for the Stacks Book Club conversation about number one Chinese restaurant with Vanessa Hua. All right, everybody, I'm back here with Vanessa Hua, author of A River of Stars. And today for the Stacks Book Club, we're talking about number one Chinese restaurant by Lillian Lee. I'm going to just remind you guys, there will be spoilers today. So if you haven't read the book and you want to, pause now, come back, listen to us later. Vanessa, welcome back. Thanks for having me on again. So excited. Okay. So we always start in the same place. I guess I should do a quick, what is this book about? So number one Chinese restaurant is about a family that owns a Chinese restaurant in Rockville, Maryland. And it's about the people who own the restaurant and run the restaurant and work in the restaurant. And it's kind of a family plus. It's not a drama saga. I don't know. It's it's a family story. It's about being um, coming to America, opening this restaurant, being born in America. It's about a lot of different generations. So it's a generational family story. So that being said, not my best description, but we'll get there. 
What did you think of the book? Oh, I loved it. Um, and I think besides being this sort of sweeping generational saga, and it's told through multiple points of view, everyone from sort of the domineering mother that everyone discounts, but gets the best of everyone, right. to sort of the sad sack son who can never get it right. And, you know, everything never, nothing ever goes his way. But I also uh, really was intrigued by the portrayals of sort of the front of the house and the back of the house, mm. because... Um, in some ways, it's not just about family by blood, but also the ones that you that you make at at work. And just um, it was really interesting to kind of see the ways in which some you know groups that are are hidden or or like people just aren't thinking of them in their fullness of their humanity. They really come to life in this book. Yeah, totally. I had mixed I had mixed vibes on this book. I couldn't help but think the whole time I was reading this book, this book is a movie. Like it felt like I wanted to be watching this story for whatever reason. And that, of course, comes into some of my bias, which is that I'm not a huge fiction person. So fiction is a little tricky for me when I'm reading it. I prefer to, I think, watch fiction. So I kept being like, this is a movie. This is a movie. This would be so fun as a movie. Um, I don't know. I just couldn't – I didn't quite like latch into this book in – in a way that made me really care deeply. And so I think I kept being like, I just want to see them interacting and like, cause so much of this book feels physical to me. I think she does a really good job of sort of describing the body. Yeah. yeah like it just feels like, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Cause I loved the story. Was it because there were multiple narrators you felt like you couldn't settle I, in on one or maybe, maybe that was some of it. Cause it, I didn't, I didn't dislike the story. Like I liked the story a lot. I just felt like I would have maybe liked it more seeing it, which doesn't happen to me very often. And I'm, I rarely read a book and go, Ooh, that's a movie, you know? And I had a little bit of that with your book because it is so sweeping and they, they're traveling and they're just so, there's so much richness in the world that you created in your book in Chinatown in San Francisco that I was like, I want to see this. But my feeling about this book was slightly different. I don't, I don't know. I, maybe as we talk about it, I'll be able to articulate better as we go. But there, that was, I would, I kept, being like, oh, I have to go read my book now. I wish I could watch it. That's like kind of what I kept feeling like. You felt a little bit at arm's length. Maybe, maybe. that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I yeah. couldn't quite like get fully in. Well, the characters are also all hugely flawed. So. They are. Yes. They are for sure, which is definitely something we should talk about. Let's see. I'm trying to figure out the best way to kind of get into this story. Well, let's just start kind of with with this like, First generation American, Jimmy and Johnny. They're the two brothers. Jimmy runs the restaurant. Johnny kind of is like the ops guy, but he's far away. We don't kind of get to him right away in the book. And they're, I would say, as there's so many different characters who take control of the story, I would say Jimmy's probably our lead, right? right. Our protagonist. Right. The, the, Wait, can I swear? Yeah, you can swear. <laughs> you can spoil all of it. Welcome to the stack. Right. The the fuck up that keeps yeah. fucking up, but is a, a dreamer too. So. Yeah. He's kind of like the heart of the book, the center of the book. It kind of moves around him. Um, what did you think of him? You know, as, as I mentioned, it just, you just, every, you know, he made all these questionable decisions. He was doing things that were outright selfish and harmful. Right. Um, but... I mean, I found him very compelling. So um, I just wanted to see how he 
how he'd end up. And um, but yeah, I mean, I think sometimes readers want someone with a greater shine to them. And if right. you, that might, but if you want someone who's like a, a, a bit more, um, I don't know, of a fuck up, then, yeah. then, you know, this, you, I think you'd like the book. So yeah, he's kind of pathetic a little bit too. Like you want to like him, but then you're like, Jimmy, what are you doing? Like, why are you, how do you not see this? Like, it's like everything turns on him. Um, but I liked him. I, I found him to be, he probably was my favorite. As far I mean, favorite. As far as favorites go, I don't. Yeah, but, but I, I mean, like, I love the. I thought the relationship between Nan and Ajak was really sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, I have having covered Chinatown, you know, as a reporter for many years. Like, I have a soft spot for those, like, yeah, like rascally uh, Chinatown men, and then, or just even, um, like, I thought the matriarch was really. Yeah, I um, definitely want to dive into her because yeah. she. It's, the thing about her character is she really doesn't get play in the book like we don't you hear them talk about her but we don't really see her until almost like a quarter maybe maybe a third into the book yeah there were um you know and oh i just wanted to add so i read it when it first came out and then i to refresh for this podcast i listened to it as an audiobook oh so maybe that's another way of getting that cinematic feel yeah how was the audio oh it was it was really really well done okay yeah yeah, I, it's always fun to revisit a book in a different form. Form, like yeah. if you read it, then to hit it up on audio or vice versa. I've done that a few times for books for the show, and I like it. Yeah, um, but yeah. So with Fang Fei, that's the mom. She um, she doesn't. We don't hear her voice. Like we don't get to her narration until kind of deeper into the book. She kind of comes in and is like. I know everything. I know everybody. Like people think I'm nothing. And she, she weirdly is the one who gets her way the most in the book. But I think that's sort of like the, the dynamic of a Chinese mom. Is it? (laughs) Where you're the mom, you, you're like, it's maybe you're like going to discount her for whatever reason, for reason of age or accent or education or whatever. But then mom always gets her way. Yeah. Like she, I I don't know. I wonder, what do you think about bringing her in so late in the story? I mean, there's just choices that have to be made in a book. And, um, Actually, in another version of A River of Stars, there were more characters. There were. There were I mean, there were more POVs. Uh, like there was a chapter from Daisy's point of view. There was a chapter from Daisy's boyfriend's point of view. And so especially when you're working with multiple narrators in a book, I think just choices have to be made. And right. so um, Feng Fei was, was just so like compelling. She really livened up every scene that she was in. But in, in some ways, maybe um, – it was to her benefit because like the book sets her up based through her son's point of view that she's mm-hmm. like kind of easily scared or fragile or just, and you know, so you, you get, we're, we're led to believe that she's going to cave to their demands. But then when you actually meet her, you realize like, I don't know, to me, I, I kind of, the ways in which you can grow up with the family see them near daily or monthly and you still don't really know who someone is. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I ask you what, what you think of bring her in late, just because I'm always so curious about how books are made, how stories are told. And I'm sure there's a version of this book where she's earlier or she maybe doesn't have a chapter, you know, like I'm sure there's versions of this book where things get moved around. Um, 
but I liked I liked that we heard so much about her and then she shows up and she's like these fucking people are idiots like she's like Johnny's Johnny's useless Jimmy is truly like John like Johnny's full of shit Jimmy's useless and I I liked that that's kind of that energy she came with and I think that that is like I wanted to see her because I maybe don't know enough about Chinese culture and Chinese family dynamics. So it was hard for me maybe to understand some of this book. And so maybe that's why I wanted to see it. Because so much of family dynamic is also the eye roll and the like looks behind the back, right? So I think maybe that's some of where my wanting to see the book came from was just my own ignorance. Um, because I don't understand, you know, I understand family dynamic generally, but every culture, every group of people has their own you know, their own, not stereotypes, but their own things that play out that it's like, oh, you know, I have a black dad. Like, if you have a black dad, you know exactly what that means. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I just really, I liked her. She was tough and smart. And I think, you know, also sexism and stuff, we just assume that the mom who doesn't run the business and lives in the big house is an idiot. But you and I know like we were saying last week, behind every working woman is another working woman. Right. Well, behind every working man is a badass boss woman who's helping. And I think that I think that Lillian does a really great job of presenting that with the mom because there aren't a lot of. I mean, aside from non, there aren't a lot of other female. There's non Janine and the mom, and then there's Annie. Right, but Annie is too young, kind of to like fulfill that role and Janine is positioned kind of in a different way so I feel like she really holds down that idea of like pulling the strings or there was this wonderful moment where Jimmy has some plan and she's like that was my plan I told you that like right decades (laughs) ago when you were a kid and he's like I don't remember she must be lying but it's sort of like came from somewhere. Right, right. Right. You didn't just create this. Just like your dad didn't just create this restaurant. He had some shithole. And I was like, maybe try a duck house. Right. Like, and this idea that that women have to be quiet about these ideas. Or not or uncredited or somehow yeah. um you almost have to like make the other person think they came up with the idea. Right. You have to make yourself small to get your great idea out, which is garbage. Such bullshit that that's something, but it it is something that's a real thing. And I think this character, I, I just said that I thought Jimmy was my favorite character, but now as I talk, this happens to me every time on the show, <laughs> when I start talking about something, like I'll come in and be like, I don't know if I like the book that much. And by the end, I'm like, this is the best book. Everybody go read it. And I'm like, Jimmy's my favorite. And then I'm like, wait. And I'm sure as we go through the other characters, I'm going to, change my mind but um I, yeah and especially because the dad isn't in the story oh because he's passed away because he's passed away yeah, yeah so he's not we don't ever hear from him and so so much of him is through everyone else that hearing her be like this was my idea or like i helped your father with that how do you think we got here you know i just think she's really like the hidden matriarch i guess right but nobody credits her they all think she's an idiot well, you know, and it's interesting. The book opens with uh, the the Bobby Hans, the the founder's um, obituary, right? And immediately the book, with this, you know, great deal of certainty and authority that I admired, it was like every lie, you know, every word was a lie. And right. it's just, I think this book is also about sort of the public face 
that we put out and then sort of the private turmoil that we that we might have. Right. And, and yeah. yeah. And especially with this immigrant twist on it, right? Like that it's not that not only are we trying to keep things from from public view, but also because we want to be accepted or because we want to make it like this public face because we're new here, right? Like, I mean... Well, we're trying to fake it until we make it. Right. That's You're exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it's just so sad when Jimmy's trying to open his Asian fusion restaurant and it's like, it's all wrong. It's not what people actually want. And, but yet he's been trained to believe that like, if you make it something more Western, it's better. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like that whole notion of like wanting to be accepted in a society that's never going to completely accept you. Right. Because in your book, we have the the ham bao bao cart <laughs> um, that Scarlett has and it's she has her own little food cart. And that's like, that's authentic, right? Like, and people are obsessed with it. And that's what happens with Jimmy. It's like he opens his restaurant. Everyone's like, do you have from the other menu? And I think, I, I guess I don't, where do you think that comes from? Do you think that that idea of like making it, making things less quote unquote authentic is more appealing? Do you think that that comes from what people on the outside or like marginalized folks would think? Or do you think that that comes from, I don't know. I don't even know what the question is. Well, I mean, in Scarlett's case, she's a newcomer. So she doesn't sort of have ideas about like, let's make this fusion. Although certainly in Shanghai, the, you know, the fanciest restaurants are going to be as cutting edge as anywhere else in the world. But, you know, those are not the restaurants she she goes to. Um, So, and, you know, a lot of immigrants actually are, um, entrepreneurs do go into the food business because those are the skills you kind of look like, what do I have that, right, what, what do I know how to do that right. like isn't here that could make, make money. And um, I recently met some women from La Cocina, which they just put out a, a, a cookbook. Um, it's an incubator for low income, often immigrant women and helping them go from food cart to storefront. Mm, it's, it's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so Jimmy, I think by contrast is, um, has been in the U.S. for a lot longer. So his aspirations are sort of have been molded by like, well, how do I... He's also trying to get away from the shadow of his father. Right. So it's like, how do I do something? How do, be a, how do I stand on my own two feet and be a success like in a way that is going to be accepted and sort of, you know, to, to feel like I've, I've really made it. Right. Yeah. yeah. I have a question, but I can't quite figure out how to put it into the world. <laughs> This happens to me a lot. So bear with me. Well, as a black woman, I have a black father and a white mother. And so there is a relationship between those two two cultures, worlds, ideas that I have a understanding to that that's different perhaps than people who are born to parents who are of the same group or whatever. And I feel like what Jimmy's reaching towards, in addition to getting out from his father's shadow, is that he wants to be seen as American, right? Which is to say white. White. Exactly. I should have done air quotes, but you guys can't see them anyways. But that he has this idea that he wants to be taken seriously as an American, even though his dad's success was deeply 
Chinese. Well, or making food that was appealing right. to American palates. American palates, but yeah. authentic, uh, authentic to Chinese cooking. He wasn't fusioning. He wasn't like reinventing the wheel. Although in some ways I would argue that American Chinese is, is its own cuisine. Right. Well, too. of course, I would argue yeah. that American American any other cuisine like <laughs> right. Taco Bell is right. like we're really stretching. It's we're really it's its own food group. But but I heard that Taco Bell is actually popular in Mexico because it's this notion of like, well, it's not Mexican right. food. Right. It's American it's Mexican, Mexican food, food yeah. right? Like Tex-Mex or whatever it is. But yeah, like So it's like the net like so if we say there's authentic Chinese food from China. Then there's Bobby's food that's Chinese, but Americanized. Yeah. And then there's what Jimmy's doing. And like, what is that? What does that mean? Like, I feel like there's, that's where the question is. There's a question in there about why, why if you have a successful parent who's doing this thing and you see the duck house and it's successful, why then is the jump to go further the white way? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think both um, – who who did uh, Fresh Off the Boat? What, channel or what? Or, or the, 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 the author of the original oh, memoir. Oh, I don't know. Well, I think, you know, his dad owned steakhouses and then he owned – then he started doing like Asian kind of stoner food. And, mm. you know, so, so too like David Chang, right? Right. Like Asian but like kind of like uh, – elevated or I don't want to say elevated because that place is a weird herring on it but like yeah. just sort of like transforming it and reflecting I remember he, David Chang was being um you know very nostalgic about how you'd like to eat ramen with like a slice of American cheese on it because mm. <laughs> it's just being sort of like <laughs> greasy good and salty okay um but I guess where I'm going with this is that they're coming to this from those two chefs are coming to it from a place of pride and not you know what i mean so jimmy's yes. jimmy's like i'll have this bugogi burger but his his intentions are it's starting from a place of like how do i be successful in this broader right world whereas you know fresh off the boat or david chang like it's like about um oh it's a fresh off the boat author is eddie huang okay yeah but just that it's they're doing it they're starting places from the food yes i think that's right yeah. i think yes that is the answer to the question that I can't ask, <laughs> right? It's like the difference between Jimmy's trying to get away from something else, whereas when done well, a Asian fusion restaurant can be great and can have a great, you know, chef who is doing, who's playing with the food because they're not necessarily playing with their relationship to their dad. Yes. Right? Exactly. Like they've taken time to actually make the menu as opposed to Jimmy who was like, oh shit, I never taught anybody how to cook fried rice or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, Although there was that one scene where it felt sort of where the kitchen's a mess and it was like, it felt like he'd almost put off where he like right. stands behind the stove with some certainty and, and like shows them what to do. Right. Which is a scene in my movie. Right. right. Right? Like that was such, there. I think maybe the reason I wanted it to be a movie is because a lot of this book is really cinematic. I mean, there's a giant fire like right. that's cool to see on screen but yeah that like you think jimmy's gonna do it and he's figured it out and he realizes like no you have to come back to the food have you ever seen the movie center stage no okay it's a movie about dancing but there's a scene where the <laughs> it's like my favorite movie there's like the dancers and she's she's 
all messed up and she's not focusing on her dancing and she goes and she's like trying to do it and her teacher comes and she's like, you must go back to the bar, <laughs> right? And it's like, you think that Jimmy's going to have that moment where yeah. he's in the kitchen and he's showing everyone what to do and he's like, puts the oil and he's like, more oil and everywhere. And like, yeah. Ah. But it doesn't, he doesn't actually have that moment. Or like, it, it just, it still is for naught. Yeah. Cause it's not maybe coming from the right place. Yeah. Or something. Or it's just, he just shoots himself in the foot like over and over again because, yeah. Yeah. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, let's stay with Jimmy, but move to Janine. So she's the real estate agent who, well, you know what we actually have to do? We have to do the actual plot of the book. I'm I'm like going on these little tangents. I'm like, we should talk about what happens. So the book opens. We have the duck house, the restaurant. Jimmy's father opens. Jimmy is meeting with this kind of shady uncle character, Uncle Pang, who from he's got nine fingers which is like don't trust this guy is basically what that is you know like that's what it feels like um and they're talking about the new restaurant the glory that jimmy wants to open and it's kind of 
Jimmy realizes that maybe Uncle Hang has some some weird is going on with how he's financing, going to try to finance the next. Right. He's been promised, um, Uncle Pung promised to help him, but then he realizes, and then for that help, he he realizes Uncle Pong's going to expect monthly kickbacks. Right. In the same way that he got um, at the number, you know, at the family's duck house. And so he's like, you know, I'm, I, Jimmy would like to pay him off. Um, and Uncle, he, he takes the money, but he, but then behind Jimmy's back, um, he then gets another fuck up that's in the kitchen, Pat. <laughs> and, um, you know, gets Pat to agree, like, here's money if you will light the dumpster on fire. But unbeknownst to uh, Pat or to Jimmy, Uncle Pong is sort of sprayed accelerant all over the walls. So that is not just going to be a dumpster fire to scare uh, people. It's it's going to burn the whole place down. Right. But, okay, is that – that was the original plan that Uncle Pong had had. And then Jimmy's like, don't do it. And then Uncle Pong's like, fuck you. You're going to regret the day you messed with me, kid. And then they still light the restaurant on fire. Uh, that was confusing to me because I thought that what had happened was that Jimmy had said, never mind, I don't want your help. And then he was like, oh, you don't want my help. You don't want to give me kickbacks. You're going to be upset. But the original plan was to light the place on fire anyways. No, I don't think Jimmy knew that. Jimmy didn't. Jimmy, I thought Jimmy realized that when he's like, oh, it's not investors. Like, <laughs> right. right? Jimmy has the moment where he's like, oh, I guess if it was investors, he would have said investors. Right. But I'm saying that Jimmy brought the 10000 to the meeting thinking it could buy off Uncle Pong, right. not knowing until then that, that like, the plan um, was right. to burn down the restaurant. Right. But he, so the plan was to burn down the restaurant and then yeah. they still burn down the restaurant, but it's more of a revenge burn down yes. at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's more like a frame up job. Well, because the insurance, uh, it's, it's sort of like, it's almost like, I don't know if Uncle Pong's like, well, how far are you going to, how badly do you want this restaurant? Maybe he wouldn't have hired someone who was so ethically fraught, right? He could have hired someone else to do it and get a, get away with it. Right. Like an outside person, yeah. not someone whose mom oh. has worked at the restaurant forever. Right. Who also works there. Right. Who's sleeping with the brother's. With, uh, the with number Johnny's. one uh, oldest waiter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. And Johnny's daughter, Annie is sleeping with Pat. Like she, right. like Pat's really in the muck for someone who's worked there for like six days. I'm like, how are you so inside? Well, sometimes when you're the young yeah. hot guy, where, what is it in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Or like, yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, he's he's like, like the new fresh babe in town, yeah. but he's just really deeply invest, deeply involved with everybody. Yeah. Um, so so Pat is hired by Uncle Pong to burn down the restaurant, but not he's just hired to light a dumpster on fire. Yeah. Which is also weird. It's like you're giving him a lot like ten thousand dollars to light a restaurant, like to light a dumpster on fire. But sixteen year old kids, I guess, don't think this way. Yeah. Um so the restaurant burns. So Jimmy wants to open his restaurant right away. And so that's kind of like the the, the plot opening, yeah. opening where we where we kick off the and, inciting incident. Mm, very good. <laughs> Did you get an MFA in creative writing? <laughs> it's like feels like that's straight out of a textbook. Um, but yeah, so that's like the premise. That's like the world in which we're functioning. But throughout the book, we're understanding the past of these characters and their relationships. So Pat's mom, Non, is the waitress turned manager she has a weird 
Uh, she had a work husband in oh, Odd that's Jack. That's it. Yeah. A work husband. For, for like 30 years. And then, but then it comes out that his wife, who has cancer, has left him. And that sort of opens the door to them to sort of falling into bed together and trying right. to seek comfort into each other. And yeah, it's a work husband that there's an emotional. An emotional affair. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like some people have work husbands where it's like, that's just really my work husband. But like, I'm not into him. But they were into each other. Yeah. In addition to being confidants and best friends. Um, so you mentioned you really liked that storyline. Yeah. I just thought it was, I mean, I think um, just him worried about like his toenails and who would, right. like just his, the deterioration of his body, like. There was just a like an examination of his mortality to like have gone from being sort of strong and sure of a, yourself and careless with your body because right. you can be, um, and just an acknowledgement of your mortality, whether it's you know within the next year or within a few years, just like at that point in your life, just figuring out like how do I want the rest of my life to go? And just who, who have I been? Have I been the person I want to be to the people that matter the most to me? Right. And in this world, in Lillian's book, she really makes the restaurant kind of like a suck for everyone who's involved with it. Like they don't have lives outside of the restaurant. There's no, feels like everyone's working a double every day. You know, they, everyone has a day off, but it feels like the people on the outside of the restaurant are really outside. So like Nan's husband, uh, Jack's hu uh, wife, um, the mother, like those characters, though they're involved peripherally, they really aren't at all part of the world. Well, I've um, I've read a number of restaurant memoirs, like some yeah. of them set at like the very, you know, glammy New York scenes. But it, right. I mean, it's similar to that too. It's like, it's nights and weekends, the times in which you would see other friends and family so right. that your work does become your your friends and family. And then you sort of, especially if you're struggling at the poverty line, then you are pulling all the, the double shifts. Right, right, exactly. Excuse me, exactly. And so like Pat just has a lot of feelings about his mom because she wasn't around, because she was working and now he's working there. And he... It was resentful. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't want to be there. Well, and then just – but it was interesting. There's a point at the end of the book where Nan is no longer working with those coworkers she worked for with for decades. And then she's like, yeah, we run in each other at Costco. And it's just sort of like – I mean, it's sad but inevitable, but that the, the friendships that are based on context and about like sort of a shared um, – I don't know, time schedule like will go away once that, that goes uh, – that place – that schedule goes away. Yeah. Which is so, it's like sad and life. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like not shocking at all. Yeah. But still sad because they worked there for so long. Right. And you get the sense that the restaurant um, under Bobby, the father, was a lot about family. And he, it seems like he kind of maybe put up with people doing things because he understood that it was a place for people to work and it was their place. And it sounds like when Jimmy and John, well, Johnny understood that a little bit, but when Jimmy is running the restaurant, he's all about business and, and numbers and these types of things. And I think that is, I think that that is really what ultimately might have made that those relationships fall apart in the end because it wasn't as much about the family inside the restaurant. 
right under right. his management. Yeah. Well, or just the very fact that, I mean, it was probably, I don't remember what was spelled out, but I feel like it was the father's um, doing to just keep the old waiters, yeah. you know, and instead of just like churning them out once they weren't as strong and, yeah. um, and that Jimmy continues the practice because that's what his father did, but like resenting it. Right. And then Johnny is the one who, un- I guess, understood it because he's the one who brought back Odd Jack, yeah. Odd Jack, right? He's the one who was like, no, he works here now. Again. Yeah, because yeah, I think that that's a hard thing to understand when you're young. Right. It's like, oh, I want to make money. I want to, he, you know, his eyes on the glory. Yeah. And it's not about the duck house, you know? So I think it makes sense why he does it, but it's shitty. Well, and then it <laughs> blows up in his face. There's totally. moment in where he's like hired white waiters and the kitchen staff is Latino. Right. And then the carvers are Asian. And like he realizes like there's no way to communicate. Nobody with each understands each other. other. Yeah. Nobody has any understanding. They don't even have the same language. They don't have the same understanding of service. And, right, right. Right. There's no shorthand that can develop, even though from people from different cultures that do develop once like a restaurant's been running for a while, but like to have totally new people who are new to each other who just don't understand right. like, what's going and, on. And like some of them have actually do have a common language from the old restaurant, which yeah. is probably getting in the way of Forming establishing. A new one, exactly. Right. It's like such a, he's just such a bumbling. Yeah. But the thing about this book that I did really like is that it has a lot of joy to it. There's like, I mean, there's sadness in it for sure. And there's a lot of heaviness, but she's found a way to kind of make it fun or joyful. And I, I really appreciated that about the book. I don't know if you had that same kind of feeling. Yeah. I mean, definitely even in the most tedious backbreaking existence, there are those like small moments of joy, whether it's like um, Nan and Ajak getting looped on cocktails, right? like, you know, that they're testing out or um, just even that sort of weird power moment where he massages Janine's feet. So, but just like all that pain, all that anxiety, they're fleeting moments of connection. Yeah. 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 Okay. So now let's talk about Janine. So she is the real estate agent that is hired by Uncle Pong to help Jimmy with the glory when Uncle Pong and Jimmy are working together to create the glory. And she's apparently a babe. And Jimmy wants her bad. And so she's interesting because she she's presented to us as kind of a shady character slightly, but we are told that we maybe want to like her. She's a single mom. And then her and Jimmy have a thing. I don't know. I didn't love her. I wanted to love her because I always want to like the female characters. I just, I just always <laughs> want to be like the guy characters suck and I love the women. Like when I read Shakespeare, I'm like, oh, only the women matter. Everyone else is useless. Um, but I couldn't I – don't. I maybe missed her. I think maybe I didn't understand her. So I'm, I'm curious what you think. I'm hoping you're going to make me fall in love with her. <laughs> I mean I just think um, it goes back to she. no one is going to take care of her except for herself. And right. So – even if she presents as, I don't know, greedy or like not, you know, not um, not Mother Teresa, let's right. say. Like I can kind of um, understand why, what was motivating her. Yeah. Um, especially, and, you know, but I think also for me, what was interesting was Feng Fei, the mother, kept referring to her as that peasant girl. Yeah, yeah. And so, 
and or even going so far like you're dating her. I don't want like right. peasant grandchildren. Right. Right. <laughs> but just I don't know. I think it was she was an interesting presence because it was sort of like going back to that idea that no community is a monolith. Like just because you're both Chinese doesn't, an immigrant too doesn't mean you're going to get along, right? Of course, which I do love. I always love when I mean I think I think authors of color inherently understand that idea that no community is a monolith, yeah, and so they always do such a good job. And it's like when you read books by white people about other other where they try to write about other groups, you're like, like have you only met one Chinese <laughs> right, person? Right. <laughs> like what? Um, yeah, I mean, I felt like I understood her. Like I got, you know, she's she's got to figure it out on her own. She's indebted to Uncle Pong because she had a, a drunk driving conviction. Yeah, yeah, she had a she did something not great, and but, he he got her uh, abusive husband deported. Yeah, and so he kind of like took care of her, so she feels indebted to him. But she's trying to figure out how to get out on her own. But I think where I got caught up on her was that I don't know that I ever fully felt like I understood her. Does she have her own? Does she narrate her own or like... She never has her own point of view. She never has her own point of view. I think that's probably what it was is that I couldn't quite figure out where she was, what her angle was. Because a lot of the book is one character talks about another character and then we get to hear from that character and see like, oh, it wasn't what we thought. And I think with her, we're hearing about her from so many different people, but we never quite get her... I guess, yeah, maybe she's a little bit more of a, a cipher. But I mean, at the same time, you just you have to make choices. No, of course. Yeah. Of course. I just I think that that's probably what keeps someone like me like further away from her is because we aren't allowed into her. Um, when you have to make those kind of choices, is that something that you as the author understand or is that something that when you're writing, you're like, okay, I'm no, this is not all going to make it. Or do you feel like your editor comes in and is like, listen, Vanessa, I really love the Janine chapter, but it's got to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, not for this book, but, specific, but yeah. like when you, when you wrote River of Stars, you said you had other characters, yeah. other points of view. How does that editing process work? Is that something that comes from you rereading your book or is that something that comes from someone on the outside? I, so when I wrote with multiple narrators, I knew it was a risk because I think when there is jumping around, sometimes people can feel distanced. And so, but that's how I felt like the novel, uh, that's what I strive for in that, that draft. But then it just, I don't know, you, you hear things like, oh, I'm not connecting with the characters. Mm. And then you just kind of realize, well, Scarlett was always sort of the main character. So she sort of dominated, but then even then, like, I got to keep Mama Fang. (laughs) I got to keep um, um, Boss Young, and even though there, I remember I was talking to some other agents who were like, "Oh, I think Boss Young could be reduced to two paragraphs," and I was like, "I don't <gasps> no. think so." But um, there was even a, a whole, whole chapter uh, devoted to Old Wu and his interlude uh, in China when he goes off to find a wife, which ended up in my short story collection. Oh, it did. Deceit and other possibilities. <laughs> but um, I guess I'm saying. Um, so once I got to the point that I I realized I, on my own, no one told me specifically, like I, I knew that it was only going to be Scarlett's book, but with some chapters with um, Boss Young and Mama Fang, um, it was, I don't know, maybe two or three rounds in with my editor at, at you know, that said, we need one chapter of Mama Fang earlier because we jumped into her point of view, at like chapter eight or something mm-hmm. later, but she's like, we just need something like three or four pages 
just to kind of cue us in that um, it's going to, she's going to show up again. Right. Yeah. So that's like, that's the part where someone else might come in and guide that. But, Suggest that. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise it's something that you kind of understand. Or just, um, I think my editor was just, she, it's interesting. She could have said like, take her out. Mm-hmm. Like don't, but I think she saw, she understood my intent, mm. why I wanted her, Mama Fang to have her own chapter. And I think the mark of a wonderful editor is like being able to like help uh, author realize their vision of the book. And, and that's why she suggested like, I think you need this chapter earlier. Interesting. Like another chapter earlier. And has it ever happened where something like that where you put the chapter earlier or something and then your editor's like, still doesn't work. She's got to go. Like, are those like, not fights, but are those kind of conversations that happen? Well, there was this whole thread uh, when Boss Young goes hunting for Scarlet. Mm-hmm. There's a whole like subplot in that chapter involving the blessing scam where the, these monks will dress up, these, scam, these con artists will dress up as monks and like uh, predict the future but like con you out of like a large sum of money. Okay. So my editor, I think rightly pointed out, there's this sort of like the celestial goddess in the book, which right. is sort of this mashup of some different religious movements that have emerged from China. And she's like, I think the fighting con artist monks and the celestial goddess, like they don't both need, those elements don't, I both don't need to be in the book. I see. So yeah. then that's like, okay, you you kind of go back and pick what you think is the right the right one. Right. And mm. I think and I think if I'd really wanted it, I guess I could have pushed back, but I, I saw where she was coming from in terms of helping me uh birth, you know, the version of the book that that you know felt right to to, to both of us. Right. Because sometimes creatives, I'd like to include myself in that <laughs> category. We need someone to be like you've, you we, we need you back. You need to come back. Like cuz when you create, you kind of can go all these different directions and then that's why there are editors because someone needs to help you and say like, okay, Vanessa, you're the creative. You've made all this amazing stuff. Now how can we bring it into being its best version? And sometimes that yes. means like taking things away yes, or adjusting things, like getting rid of things that are great and wonderful and can stand on their own as a short story, but they don't serve Scarlet. Right. They don't serve the larger story. Right. Yeah. Right. So, okay, this was something that I really wanted to touch on, which is food as kind of a character and a theme. Um, obviously, we, we kind of started there, but I got tripped up on my own question. But um, it's huge in this book, obviously, a book about a restaurant. But it's also something that's really big in your book. And um, I I found in books that I've read that touch on immigrant families or immigrant stories that food does become really important. And I wonder if that is... I mean, and that and that spans all different. That's not just Chinese stories. That spans all different kinds of people on those stories. And I wonder if that's something. My speculation would be that because food is something you can take with you, even if you can't take it with you, you can take a recipe or the way you make something anywhere. If you're an immigrant coming coming from America to another country or coming to America, you might not be able to find the exact same ingredients, but you can find a way to make a food. It's kind of like an oral history. It can go with you without any – your house can't come. Right. All it, your shoes can't come. Yeah, all your relatives can't come. Right. So I wonder if that – if you have any idea or any feeling of why food does become such an important sto- part, part of um, immigrant stories. I, I mean – I think it's, as you're saying, you adapt it to sort of, you take it from your homeland and you adapt it 
to where you are to make yourself feel at home. So, right. um, I mean, so food is a metaphor. It's like a stand in for culture, for connection, for legacy. Um, but I mean, food is also food. You digest right. it. I mean, you need it. You need it. You need it. And so, um, as I mentioned, I think there are figures out there, but I think a lot of immigrant entrepreneurs really do get their start in um, food, not because like they were amazing chefs back in the old country, mm-hmm. but because this is like the skill they have or this is what's in demand for them. Like right. they they kind of look over their portfolio or, or do they look over like what what is it can I that I can do to make money, you know? Right. And so this is like – this is one one path um, into it, and so, um, but you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you'll get those notes in workshop, or I'll, I'll talk to other writers of color, and then they'll get a note from someone that says, "Oh, I think you should have more food." <laughs> like the story has nothing to do with right. Food. Well, that's kind of the other part of it is I I do wonder because I see it so much if it is something that is like expected or like pushed on authors of color because it's something that white audiences can understand. They can digest it. Boom. (laughs) There it is. Because like, look, everybody eats. So it's interesting that in stories about like white people in America, there's not a ton of food often. Like how come we're not, you know, like how come they're not being told to put more food in? Right. right. Obviously a a book about a restaurant is going to have food in it. Like I feel like white, black, brown, otherwise. But I do, I, it does come up a lot. So I wonder, I just, I, I have always wondered about that. I don't know if you read, um, Crystal Hana Kim's book. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. We did on the show. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And we talked to her a little bit about food. And one of the things that she said, if I'm remembering, this was over a year ago now, but she was saying that, um, it was important to her to have the food because it was something that was important to her, Crystal. So it was, and because the story was kind of like loosely based on her grandmother, that if the food had gotten from her grandmother to her, that it obviously needed to get there. Like that she was building that bridge. Or just even the way the book opens where they're just like looking for food, looking for food and like her brother, the brother's sick and just like, all. it just made me so anxious. I mean, especially when people are sort of, in perilous economic situations, like how food takes just, it's about sustenance too, as as much as about culture. Yeah. And how it's all consuming in that, in a refugee story, like that you need, you need the food, you need it. And so it becomes the thing that you think about and talk about. And the man who can bring a chicken is like very very important. important. Um, But you know, A River of Stars, I also want to say the food plays a role because it's situated in a very specific point in time in San Francisco. Mm. When, food, there was a creme brulee cart and right. like none of them were, no one was doing pop-ups yet. It was like this weird thing, like track them on Twitter. And like, yeah. there's a little bit wild west in the way it's more formalized now with yeah. food truck parks and things like that. So that's how someone like Scarlett, who's a newcomer, but could, could find an opening because there was a bit, it was a bit less regulated. Let's right. Say. Or they were, they were, you know, they were still figuring out what the regulations would be. Um, so that's why, and then also with the um, stuff with marriage equality, like that was also all happening around 2013 too. So, mm. so for me, for the for a river of stars, it very much was the intersection with food is situated 
also with like sort of a point in time in terms of thinking about entrepreneurship in, right. in um, San Francisco. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that you said that so many immigrant people, pe- pe- immigrants come here and they, food is their way into, because there's also always that like, you know, model immigrant, like it's like they come in, they're a scientist or they're a doctor. And if you're not that, if you're coming for any other reason and you don't necessarily have a plan for financial gain, if you don't have a plan of what your job's going to be, it's like, well, what are my marketable skills? What are the things I'm able to do? What can I bring to the table? My cousin's um, father got a PhD in economics and he worked as a waiter at a local Chinese restaurant, um, you know, while he was in school. And then he ended up buying the restaurant and running the restaurant. (laughs) Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, and then I think my grandma cooked at it for a while. And then I think another uncle like tried to buy a Long John Silver franchise, (laughs) but I remember going and it was like dead empty. So, yeah. um, So, so not just, not just people who don't necessarily have a plan, but people who do have a plan too. And then realize like, well, maybe this is the best option for my family. Right. Because this is a way to make money and that's what we need right now. Okay. Before we kind of wrap up today. Oh, there was one scene in this book that I just loved so much that I just want to give it a little shout out is the scene between Odd Jack and his wife when she's in the hospital and they're kind of like communicating for the first time in 50 years. I thought that scene was so beautiful. Yeah, it was very, um, it, really emotional. Just like the fact that the things that couldn't be said or it goes back and forth between like, oh, maybe we could go back to sort of joking around with each other. But then her being sort of getting caught up and realizing like, but you are my husband and you are, you are my wife. And just um, it felt very uh, real. Yeah. And it had a slightly different tone than the rest of the book. So as I was reading it, I kind of was like, oh this thing, like something is happening in this moment. I just thought it was a really fantastic scene. So shout outs to Lillian Lee. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that's hard to do, right? To to change tone in a book, especially so late. But but I felt like it was right for those characters. No, totally yeah. right. Like it felt right, but it almost had like a gravitas that the that wasn't necessarily present in other scenes in the book. And it just like... I don't know. It's like it, like in a movie. Like there's the scene towards the end where you're like, if you nail this scene, like you nailed it. And I felt like she really just – that seems just really special. Yeah. I just loved it. Are there any other things that pop out at you that you wanted to discuss about the book? I just um, – I love just uh, with books like in the ways where you realize like, oh, our books could be friends with each other. Totally. <laughs> like I – there's another book, uh, What We Were Promised by Lucy Tan, mm, um, yeah. which also is about sort of like upstairs, downstairs, like, uh, you know, the the wealthy Chinese and then their their servants and just sort of characters that you're like, there's like a, a resourcefulness or, or a wiliness, um, you know, similar in those two books too. So um, before we get out of here, we always talk about the cover and the title. So the title, number one Chinese restaurant, what did you think of it? Oh, I thought it was fun. It um cuz I I think I've actually been to the restaurant where Lillian worked and that inspired it. It's mm. like in Falls Church, Virginia, and you go there and it's like it's sort of an old school banquet hall type place and it's like covered with like all those old photos of like presidents from four or five administrations right, ago. Right, right, right. Um and so it, it's just um and then just the number one Chinese restaurant like 
I think on one hand, there's like this obsession with being VIP and number mm. one. But on the other hand, you'll like have the full restaurants that are like number five foot Huang <laughs> restaurant, right? Where it's like, on one hand, it's like number one means like, it's like top, top restaurant, but it also kind of almost uh, implies like there's, there's just, again, turtles all the way down. There's just like so right. many Chinese there's restaurants. There's so many options. Yes, there's so yeah. many options. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I think the the duck with caught in the pinchers of a chopstick is very eye-catching and sort of like, again, speaks to the larger themes of like feeling trapped yeah. by legacy or culture or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the title and the cover are great on this book. I felt like I knew what I was getting into. Like the tone feels right. I, there's nothing I hate more than when I look at a book and I'm like, oh, this is going to be like this. And then I start reading it and I'm like, wait, I'm so confused <laughs> because I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but that packaging is part of the experience of reading a book. If you're reading it on a Kindle, maybe not so much because you don't have the color, but if you're reading it, you know, if you're looking at it, if you're picking it up from a bookstore, like it does, it, it, it shapes with your mood. And, you know, so I felt like this was really right on the, the green. I really love the border I really love and the font of number one Chinese restaurant I really love. Right. And then the the fact that like the duck is squawking out yeah. a novel is so yeah. fun. Yeah. I just think it's really beautifully done. Just feels like right on. Yeah. And I like that there was um in the flap the oh. genealogy. Yeah. You have the hardback. So in the paperback, it's just like a few pages in, but I loved the family tree. Yeah. I need a family tree. Yes. If you've got a family, I need to know about it. I need to know who's who. Because in the beginning, before I knew all the characters, I was constantly flipping back. And then when the mom finally came in, I was like, wait, 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 wait. Let me go back. Let me just double check. But I do. I appreciate that so much in a book. Okay. I think we're all set here. Is there, if there's anything else? No, it's it's been a delight talking about books with you. It's been so great talking with you. Um, you guys can get Number One Chinese Restaurant. It's out in the world if you haven't read it yet. Sorry, we spoiled it. And then, of course, Vanessa's book, A River of Stars, is also out in the world. It's in paperback. It's in hardcover. It exists. You can listen to it. You can do all the things. So go check it out. Vanessa, thank you for being here. Thank you. And we will see you guys in the sacks. All right. That does it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to our guest, Vanessa Hua, for joining us for the Stacks Book Club. You can find everything we discussed on today's episode in the link in the show notes. Make sure to get your book recommendation read on air by sending us an email at askingthestacks at gmail.com. For more from the Stacks, please follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Make sure you are subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.